So we are continuing to make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we are going to look at a little bit more about what Jesus says about a, a particular way that we are to stand out as disciples of his. If you remember, last week uh, we talked about some passages where Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth, a light of the world, a city set on a hill, and a light that's in a house that gives light to everything that's in there. And in every one of those illustrations Jesus gives, you do stand out. It's like you are different. The, you notice the salt in the dish, and you notice the light, certainly, that, uh, as, as it shines in the darkness. But not only does it stand out, it also stands out for good, because it is improving the world around it. Uh, it's one thing to stand out, but that's not always a good thing. Uh, Jesus wants us to stand out as people who show the world a better way. And he doesn't leave us to our own creativity, or he doesn't leave us to our own devices to come up with how to do that. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is describing how you do that. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is a way to do that with respect to our righteousness. Jesus is going to call us to have a surpassing righteousness, a higher level of righteousness, even than those around us. And that, that can be somewhat confusing to us because I think we are often... Uh, more influenced by the language Paul uses when he talks about righteousness than the language Jesus uses. And uh, as you read Matthew and as you read Romans, a couple things will become clear, but one of those is Matthew or Jesus and Paul aren't always using their words the exact same way. Uh, for example, in Romans, righteousness isn't something that any of us have on our own. There's none that is righteous. No, not one. Righteousness is a gift given or imputed to you on the basis of your faithfulness or allegiance to Christ. When you give your life to Christ, even though you're unrighteous, God blesses you with righteousness. That's a brilliant and powerful and true idea. But if you read Matthew, that's not really the way Jesus talks about righteousness. In Matthew, Jesus uses the word righteousness in, in a different way, and it has a lot to do, uh, perhaps it's more similar to the idea of, of obedience. Uh, the idea is righteousness is something you practice. It's something you do, and you need to do it well. You need to seek it. You need to practice it uh, with pure thoughts and pure motives, and it's something that will separate you from the world around you. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, a passage that we're going to get to in just a minute, Jesus says, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's actually saying, I want your righteousness to be a higher level, to be more righteous than even the scribes and the Pharisees, which would be a pretty shocking statement in this day. In chapter 6 and verse 1, Jesus is going to say, when you practice your righteousness— don't do it to be seen by men or to receive glory or honor from them. Rather, they shouldn't even—when you practice your righteousness, it should be something that is done uh, to give glory to God rather than to receive glory from men. And he gives three examples of practicing righteousness. He gives the example of giving, of praying, and of fasting. In Matthew, those are all ways that you practice righteousness. And then Matthew 6 ends by saying that uh, we ought to be people who aren't— consumed with striving and seeking after uh, wealth or our clothing or even food and some of the necessities of life. He says, instead, seek righteousness. In that, you're, you're learning a bunch of things about righteousness. Righteousness is something you practice. Righteousness is something that needs to be done with pure motives. Righteousness is something that you're supposed to pursue. The, the, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
You long for justice and for the will of God to be done, and you strive for that, both in your life and in the community around you. You want righteousness to to be something that grows, and that happens through listening to the things Jesus says. And so in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to be talking about how we stand out, how we shine like a light in the world, but we do so through the practice of righteousness. So how are you going to practice righteousness? Um, One of the ways that Jesus is going to talk about that, he's going to talk about his kingdom stands out when we are contrasted from the world around us. As we go through this lesson, we'll see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he, he often will use logic of contrast, meaning you should look different than the people around you, and righteousness is one of the ways you do that. One of the ways that we come to practice righteousness is through the way that we read and apply Scripture. Um, And so for Jesus, keep in mind the New Testament hasn't been written yet, so when he's going to talk about Scripture, he's going to talk about the Law and the Prophets, and that's going to make a lot of sense for the audience around him. Uh, But he's going to talk about the way that they read and practice and, and interpret and apply the Law of Moses. And he's going to give interpretations of the Law of Moses that will help them have that surpassing level of righteousness. You know, we can, we can all sometimes look at the same thing and see something quite different there. Um, what I mean by that is, have you ever seen those, uh, there's art pieces where if you look at it one way, you see a rabbit, but if you look at the same piece and you kind of shift your eyes a little bit and look at it from a different perspective, you might see a duck. Uh, there are things like that, that, uh, that depending on your perspective or what you're thinking, you can see something quite different. You can even hear uh, something different. Have you ever seen those, uh, those things or heard those things? Uh, they're online from time to time, where if you're told a word to listen for and you'll, it'll play a sound, you'll hear that word. And then they will play that exact same sound but give you a different word to think about, and you'll hear that word from that same sound. It's kind of amazing some of the ways that our minds, our ears, and our eyes are all interconnected, and you often see uh, what your vantage point is showing you, and another person will see what their vantage point is showing them, and those things might not always align. Well, I mean, that can happen with all kinds of topics. It certainly happens with Sabbath in the New Testament, in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was aware of the same passages that the scribes and Pharisees were aware of when they talked about Sabbath. They, they had the same information, and yet they had vastly different views about what Sabbath was, why Sabbath was, and how to honor Sabbath, how, how Sabbath was. Uh, throughout the Scriptures, you'll see that Jesus will present a different way of looking at Scripture than the people around him, and that the way that he's going to present Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount is going to be a way that will elevate the level of righteousness among his disciples, which will help them shine as lights in the world around them. So uh, look with me in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. And uh, verse 17 through 19, we're going to read here in just a moment. But uh, in these verses, notice how he quickly shifts from talking about how you should stand out in the world to how he wants you to think about Scripture. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. All right, so that's Matthew 5, 17 and 18. A couple of things are interesting about that passage. One of them 
is that he is preparing people or he's, he is uh, making sure people don't misunderstand what he's doing with the law. He is not coming to abolish it. He's very clear on that. So if, if by the way, if you think he has come to abolish the law, then that, that's, that's an improper way to think about what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not coming to abolish the law. He is coming to fulfill the law and the prophets, it actually says. Now, if you look at that word fulfill throughout Matthew, you'll see some interesting things. It appears over and over again. One of the ways that it appears is sometimes Jesus will do something, whether it is uh, his virgin birth or whether it is going to Egypt to escape the wrath of King Herod or whether it is returning to Nazareth after his plight uh, to Egypt or whether it is um, him... uh, 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 There's quite a few things as you keep going through, uh, whether it is him being baptized uh, by John. And you go through and you'll see that often Matthew will say that Jesus is fulfilling different aspects of the Old Testament with each uh, of these actions. And usually when his life and his actions end up uh, fulfilling something from the Old Testament, when you read the passage that Matthew says it's fulfilled, it comes from the prophets. Uh, I don't know if that's intentional or merely coincidence, but it's fascinating. When you read through uh, what Jesus' life and actions fulfill, it'll be a passage from the prophets. And yet what Jesus is about to do in the Sermon on the Mount is, I think, give you a fulfilled understanding of the law. Because he's about to, starting in verse 21, start quoting passages from the law of Moses and saying, but I say to you, and then he'll give a new interpretation of that passage or a particular interpretation of that passage that will draw his disciples to a higher level of righteousness as they read it and practice it. And in that way, he is taking a passage and an understanding of that passage, but he's bringing it to a fuller level. He is making it more full in its application and in their understanding of it. And so throughout his life, And in his teachings, he is fulfilling the law and the prophets. And that's very different from abolishing the law and the prophets. That's very different from saying, ah, you don't need that stuff anymore. That's Old Testament stuff. I'm bringing something new. And sometimes as Christians, and this is true throughout the whole history of the church, we've not always known exactly what to do with the law and the prophets. And sometimes we have bordered on you know, trying to act like they are secondary, less important, or uh, more distant scriptures. And I don't think that's the right uh, way to go forward. There was a guy in the second century, his name was Marcion, and he was actually able to create quite a following. And he had very much that idea. In fact, he had that idea to the extreme. He actually believed that there was a different Old Testament God and a different New Testament God revealed in Jesus. And the Old Testament God was evil. He created matter, and matter is evil. And uh, as you read through the Old Testament, you're reading what, uh, what evil people were doing for an evil God. And that's something that Jesus came to completely do away with. And so Jesus is revealing to us the good God. And so when he came up with his list of books for the Bible— He had zero Old Testament books in it. He didn't need that nonsense. Um, He came up with a list that had 11 books in it. One of them was the the, uh, Gospel of Luke, rather than, say, Matthew. Why do you think—he only had one gospel. Why do you think he would have liked Luke more than Matthew? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. Uh, And he actually kind of altered Luke a little bit uh, to, to make it conform more with his ideas. But Matthew has passages like this. 
that say, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. In Matthew, Jesus very heavily emphasizes uh, the importance, the value, the essentiality of the law and the prophets. And so that's not a very helpful gospel for someone who says we ought to have nothing to do with the law and the prophets. And then he had 10 other books. Those were just letters of Paul. Uh, And uh, even in those, there was some uh, adjustment that had to be done because while Paul will say things like God has broken down the dividing barrier, which is the law, Paul also often quotes and relies upon the law and the prophets for his teachings. So Marcion was of this idea that we should have no Old Testament stuff, all New Testament stuff, and the problem with the New Testament is so much of it relies on the Old Testament, so he tried to get away from all of that stuff because he saw no value in the Old Testament. I don't know many people who go that far with it, but I do think there are people who forget that the Old Testament is just as much Christian scripture as the New Testament. And it is essential for our understanding of Jesus. It is essential for our understanding of God. And it's even essential for understanding how to live in the kingdom of heaven, which is why Jesus, for these teachings, when he says, I did not come to abolish it, he does not want you thinking Old Testament's done away with, now we're under the New Testament. I, I don't think, I don't think he wants you having that mindset. I think instead, he wants you to read and value and appreciate and apply and even obey the Old Testament, but to understand we're doing so from a new vantage point, from a new context. And that will change some of the way that we read it. And we'll talk about that more here in just a minute. But the next thing Jesus goes on to say is whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called the greatest or great in the kingdom of heaven. So what he's saying is even the things that you think are so unimportant, uh, the minor things that you think, ah, we don't even need to listen to those, you should still listen to them. Uh, There is... um, Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and really you see it a lot in the book of Matthew, Jesus relies on the logic of correlation to do some teaching. Meaning, if you are going to uh, give mercy to other people, then God will give mercy to you. Because he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In Matthew chapter 6, after the Lord's Prayer, he says that if you are willing to forgive people, then God will forgive you. In Matthew chapter 7, a negative correlation is made. If you judge other people harshly, then God's going to judge you harshly. With the standard that you use, it'll be measured back to you. In Matthew chapter 10, if you confess Jesus before men, he'll confess you. If you deny Jesus before men, he'll deny you. In Matthew chapter 25, if you see people who are naked and hungry and and, in need of clothes and shelter, and you turn your back from them and you reject them, then it's like you're doing that to Jesus. But if you see people who are naked and hungry and in prison and you visit them and you help them and you clothe them and you feed them, then it's like you're doing that to Jesus. In each of these passages, there's a relationship between the way we treat others, God's watching and notices, and we will be treated in like manner. I think the same thing is happening right here with respect to the law where he's saying, if you look at the law and you say, ah, that's not important, that's the the least of the command, you don't even need to do that one, then when you are seen, you'll be seen as the least. But if you say, hey, there's great value here, then you'll be seen as someone having great value. So he's making an analogy, the way you treat the law and the prophets is ultimately the way that you're going to be treated. The way that you treat others is the way you're going to be treated. And so you should probably treat others really well, 
You should probably be very merciful. You probably shouldn't judge too much, and you should probably take the word of God seriously. So, so Jesus, in these verses, is building up his point that actually the law and the prophets matter, and they matter a whole lot. But that does bring up some questions for us. Um, how do we read them? Because, I mean, you read through the Old Testament, uh, there are a lot of things there that we, we don't do. And, and I don't think we should do. Um, most of us, uh, if we had a good morning, had bacon, you know? Uh, most of us, if we uh, eat well, we'll eat pork sometimes. Most of us, if we, uh, you know, we'll wear clothing with different fabrics. Uh, you know, we don't really attach uh, theology to the idea of circumcision. We certainly don't divide from other people over that. Uh, those were things that you see in the Old Testament, and those actually were, were intense debates within the early church. Like, the early church from its earliest days had, had struggle with knowing exactly what to do with the Old Testament. And you had some Christians who were saying, well, of course we should still listen to the Old Testament. It's the Word of God, and Jesus didn't come to destroy the Word of God, so we should still listen to it. And so, yes, you should be circumcised. And if we're converting Gentiles, they should be circumcised too. And Paul, for example, says absolutely not. We should not be forcing them to be circumcised. And yet other aspects of the law, Paul will teach. And, and so it actually becomes kind of difficult. If when we realize that the early church didn't continue to practice the law of Moses the exact same way, yet it still remained part of their scriptures. It's, it's weird for a religion to have scriptures and to not always do what they say and to be okay with that. Um, but here's what helps me think about it, and hopefully it'll help you also. Um, that's also true with the New Testament, uh, meaning there are things that are said in the New Testament that we don't do, and I don't know that we necessarily are supposed to do. Um, for example, a lot of us came in here and we greeted each other and we smiled and we shook hands and we talked for a minute and we sat down and I didn't see a lot of smooching. Um, but when you read through like Romans 19, we're told to greet one another with a holy kiss. Like kissing is a way of greeting people, but we don't often do that. Why? Well, because I think we've correctly understood that there are certain parts of culture that are in the Bible, and there are certain parts of theology or command from God that are supposed to uh, transcend culture that are in the Bible. Sometimes you have to try, to try to read through because our goal is not to take everything from the first century culture and make it our culture. One of the beautiful things about the gospel is that no matter what your culture is, no matter what uh, political system you're in, no matter uh, who's in charge or what, uh, you can find a place for the gospel to transform lives within each culture. And so if we deny our culture and try to just go back to a first century culture, we're doing something rather strange. Paul seems to think that the gospel can reach people no matter what different place they're in. And he even tries to live that way. Like in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I become all things to all people that by any means, all means, I can save some. So to the Jew, I become a Jew. To the, to the, uh, to the Greek, I become a Greek. To the person who's under the law is under the law. To the person who's not under the law, not under the law. To the person who's strong is one who's strong. To the person who's weak. Like, and Paul can find ways for people in all of these different settings in life to still reach them with the gospel because it's powerful like that and it can transform all kinds of lives. And so you read through the, the New Testament and you'll see some things clearly seem to have, be embedded within the culture, but there's not an eternal theological significance attached to it. Um, the context of our culture makes us read certain things differently in the New Testament. 
And I think the same thing is true with the Old Testament as well. Meaning, Jesus came and the world radically transformed under the coming of the Messiah. Through Jesus, nothing is the same anymore, including the way we might read the Old Testament. So, just take, for example, the food laws that, that uh, you read about in the Old Testament. Uh, well, certain foods are clean and certain foods are unclean, and we don't really do that anymore. Why? Why is it that we don't do that anymore? Is it because we don't have to listen to the Old Testament and it doesn't matter anymore? That was abolished, and so now I can eat whatever I want? Actually, I'd say no. I don't think that's the logic. I think the logic is you still shouldn't eat unclean foods, but Jesus made all foods clean. He changed the context. When you read Mark chapter 7, it explicitly says that, for he made all foods clean. When you read Acts chapter 10, Peter has to learn this. He has three visions from heaven telling him, you can eat this stuff, which is actually uh, an analogy of him going to evangelize the Gentiles, because God, don't call unclean what God has made clean. God made it clean. And so it's not that Peter's eating unclean food now. It's that all foods have been made clean through the Messiah, just like all peoples are welcomed into the family and the covenant of God through the Messiah. And so there are certain aspects of the law that it's not that we just ignore those. It's that the whole context of our lives through the Messiah has changed the way that we read those. And so that's why it's, you shouldn't think of it as though the old law is done away and uh, was uh, annulled or is, it doesn't matter anymore. Jesus didn't come telling people to break the law and to do something else. He changed the, the whole mindset in the vantage point from which you view the law. And that's going to change the way that we apply some of it. A, a helpful illustration might be something like this. If you're engaged to be married, that engagement is going to come to an end in one of two ways. Either you decide, I don't like you anymore and I don't want to be married to you, and you break off the engagement. That's one way to do it. Uh, And that would be, you know, at the end of that, you're no longer, they're not your fiancé anymore. The other way is to fulfill that engagement by getting married. And after that, you're not really engaged anymore. They're not really your fiancé anymore. But you didn't, like, break it. You fulfilled it. And I think that's similar to what Jesus has done with the law. It's not that he broke it and said, all right, we don't need that anymore. It's that it reached its fulfillment in Jesus. Now, just like if you're engaged and you're married, a lot of what your relationship was based on is still what your relationship is based on. And a lot of the memories that you shared are still memories that you delight in. And a lot of the, your personalities are often going to be the same. And, and there's going to be a lot of carryover from uh, the engagement to the marriage. But there's also going to be some differences there as well. And, and I think that those differences uh, are, are important to navigate as we consider what Jesus is doing with the law and the prophets. Well, Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount He's going to, from this point, and we'll start talking about this next week, start actually giving quotations and interpretations of the law of Moses that existed in his day and give his deeper, fuller, fulfilled understanding of how they ought to be applied for us. And he's not going to say, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but don't worry about that anymore. That's Old Testament. No, that that would be breaking the law. What instead what he's going to do is he's going to fulfill it and say, but I say to you, and then he'll give some deeper understanding. So with each of those, sometimes they're called antitheses. Uh, his first antithesis, like if you're reading a commentary or something, they'll, they'll talk about the six antitheses of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Antitheses aren't really, I don't think that's a great word. It's not like Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said, but I'm telling you something that contradicts that. No, he's saying, you've heard that it was said, and I'm going to give you the best way to understand that and the best way to apply that, the fullest way to, to grapple with the meaning of that text. And so I think with each of these, Jesus is going to be giving a better understanding of the law and the prophets rather than eradicating the law and the prophets. And when you grasp onto that fuller meaning and you try to live it out, guess what's going to happen? Well, you're going to uh, engage in that theology of contrast you're going to look different than the people around you. You'll look different even than the scribes and the Pharisees. When Jesus says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees would have been highly esteemed and respected as the religious leaders among the group that Jesus is talking to. Jesus is talking to people who, if they were wanting answers to their religious questions, where would they go? They'd go to the scribes and Pharisees. They were the people who were educated. Those were the most righteous people in the land. And yet Jesus is looking at this ragtag group of uh, followers, the people who, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the people who are mourning and the people who are often trampled over, the people who are persecuted, the people who uh, are poor in spirit, the people who would often be overlooked, he says, you're going to be the lights of the world, you're going to be the salt of the earth, you're going to be the city set on the hill. In fact, your righteousness will be greater than the most righteous people in all the land, and I'm going to tell you how to do it. So as you keep reading, you realize that he not only wants their righteousness to be separate and to look different than the scribes and Pharisees, but throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he'll go back to this idea. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. You'll see how often he relies upon the, the concept of standing out and being different. Matthew five forty-six says, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more uh, are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So he wants their righteousness to be greater than the scribes and Pharisees, but he also says the tax collectors. He also says the Gentiles. I don't want you just to look like every one of them. I mean, everyone loves the people who love them. I want you to love even your enemies. That's a way that you stand out, that, that you are contrasted from the world around you. Um, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, he'll compare them to the hypocrites, which I think might also be a, a reference to the religious leaders of the day. But he says, When you give to the poor, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. He says the same thing in verses uh, 5 and 7 and 16, where he's talking about the hypocrites and those uh, who, or, or the Gentiles, who try to, uh, with their prayers, receive glory, or try to, with their fasting, let everyone know that they're fasting, or try to use long, vain repetitions with their words so that everyone says, wow, what a fantastic prayer. He says, I don't want you praying in that way. That's what hypocrites do. That's what Gentiles do. Don't be like the tax collectors. Don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. In Matthew 6, uh, verses 30 through 33. He'll use the same logic about uh, people, most people spend so much time consumed with their stuff and their clothes and their money and their wealth. He says in verse 30, but if God clothes the, the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? 
For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. For your Father knows that you need these things, but you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Notice he's saying you could be like the Gentiles and just uh, seek after wealth and money and clothes, but I want you to seek the kingdom of heaven and righteousness. That's how you're going to have a surpassing level of righteousness. I want you to focus on that rather than what they focus on. Finally, in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, if we're talking about contrast, the sermon begins to conclude with a picture of two different roads. You have a very wide, easy, nice, pleasant path that most people are on. You're going to find Gentiles there. You'll probably find some tax collectors there. Probably find some hypocrites there. Probably going to find some Pharisees and scribes there. You're going to find most people there. And that road is easy, and it's pleasant, and it's paved, and it leads to death. He says, I'm giving you a different road. You'll look different on it. You're going to be like the light of the world on it. You're going to be like the salt of the earth. You'll be like a city set on a hill. You'll have a surpassing righteousness that's not always easy to do. If you think that it's easy to do, then you don't understand what Jesus is, the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is a challenge. It's a challenge to be transformed, every one of us. It's a challenge to love the people who hate you. But Jesus is calling us to get on that narrow and on that difficult road. So as we bring our lesson to a close, get prepared to live differently. We're about to see some specifics as to what that looks like. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, make it real. Make daily practical changes that will transform you over time and bring glory to God now. So as you read through and we read things about anger, try to make active steps towards reducing your anger that you feel towards others and what that anger causes you to do. When it comes to lust or when it comes to your marriages or when it comes to your honesty, start actually trying to find real true ways to make application of what Jesus says so that your level of righteousness doesn't stay the same. And it certainly it doesn't decline but it begins to rise to the glory of God above. If there's anyone here this morning who needs the help and prayers of the church, uh, we would love to help you in any, any way that we can. If there's anyone here who would like to be baptized and become a Christian this morning, please let that be known. You can uh, talk to one of our elders in that room over there to the side, or you can come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.